And now here's another timely yet timeless word from the Word of God from one of our services at First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. How many have ever heard of Jonathan Edwards? Hands, please. Jonathan Edwards. Uh, preacher during the uh, Great Awakening here in uh, the States. Uh, his most famous sermon, of course, uh, 1741, Enfield, Connecticut, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. He preached it at his own church, and there was almost no response. And they asked him to preach it at Enfield, which was resisting the spiritual awakening going on. And he preached it, and hundreds of people came to the Lord that day and just sparked that. Well, uh, way back when, way back then, at some point, he took a phrase from Romans 3.19 that every mouth may be stopped. And he preached a sermon and he titled it The Justice of God in the Damnation of Sinners. Okay? He forcefully shows that God is infinitely holy. To sin against him is an infinitely heinous crime and it deserves infinite punishment. So God is just to punish sinners with eternal punishment. Punishment. Now, as far as I know, Edwards did not follow up that sermon with our passage today, Romans 3, 25 and 26, on the justice of God in the salvation of sinners. But that is the exact question that Paul is going to tackle in our text. How is it that a holy God can be just, right, and yet justify Sinners. How is that accomplished? How can he forgive our sins and still be a God of justice? Now, admittedly, that question probably doesn't keep you up at night. There's a good chance you've never been asked that question when you, if you've ever shared Christ with anybody. That's not, that's not an average thing to think about. It's more likely that you've been asked, well, why can't God just forgive everybody? I mean, when someone offends me, I just forgive him. So why can't God did th do that? Why did Jesus have to shed his blood? Well, the answer to those questions is you can forgive like that because you are not absolutely holy. But God is. God must maintain his absolute justice by punishing all sin. An unjust, an unjust God would not be a God at all. And there's the rub. If God must punish all sin to maintain his absolute justice, then how can he forgive sinners? If a human judge started showing his love by pardoning murderers and terrorists and rapists, we'd say, well, hang on just a minute, that's horrible. He's not upholding justice. So the question that Paul is grappling with here is, how can a holy God be just if he pardons guilty sinners? How can he be a God of, of love who shows mercy and yet be a righteous God of justice? Now, Paul's answer is Jesus' sacrificial death is satisfied God's wrath and it displays his justice in justifying sinners who have faith in Jesus. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. 
Again, Father, we ask for your assist, assistance uh, that you may give us uh, eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to understand the truths that are about that are before us here concerning your son Jesus, concerning his death on the cross and what it accomplished. Father, by your spirit, uh, let us understand, let us see, let us embrace it. Father, if there's anybody here today that doesn't know Jesus as their Lord and Savior, may today be the day. And we ask it in his precious name. Amen. Now, as with our text last week, this week's test, text, it's simple on one level, but it, it, it's, it's quite deep, it's difficult on another level. The easy to understand message is this. When he died on the cross, Jesus bore the penalty for sin for all who would ever trust in him. So if I trust in him, God can justly forgive my sin. Okay, that, that, that's, that's the easy version. But as with last week's text, there are some difficult theological terms here that have just generated thousands and thousands of pages of commentary and debate among serious scholars. Two of the main words, one you, you, you don't hear all the time. It's in the Bible four times, propitiation. Anybody want to give us, stand up and give us a, you know, a dissertation on what, on what propitiation is? No, because we don't... That's not part of our common language, is it? Hey, when was the last time you were propitiated? No, it's just not it. Another word that we have to think about a little bit is, is a simple word. It's a common word, blood. Uh, Joseph, you, you ever seen any blood? Yeah, yeah. He's, he, he's an orthopedic PA, so he's familiar with blood. I was, in, I was in the lab for 20 years, so I played with blood for a job. All right, but it has theological implications. And of course, there's words that we looked at last week as well, justification and belief and faith. So we'll get to those. We've got to understand those terms and Paul's flow of thought here to apply the scriptures correctly. We, it's vital, this is a vital piece of scripture to apply properly since it deals with our eternal destiny. And of course, because it is such a vital text on a vital topic, the enemy has been relentless in attacking its truth. Uh, today, there are quite a few uh, uh, attacks on the doctrine of the atonement. And that's what we're looking at this morning. So number one, Jesus' sacrificial death satisfied God's wrath against us. So A, the basic meaning of propitiation is to satisfy or to appease the wrath of God against sin. And as I said, propitiation is not a word that we use in our everyday common conversation. It, it comes actually from the ancient religious world. People offered sacrifices to appease the anger of the gods. And because of that imagery, some liberal scholars have tried to eliminate the idea of God's anger by changing the word to expiation. There is a biblical word for expiation, but it's not this one. And that simply refers to the removal of guilt. All right, you're guilty. Nope, you're not. We're going to take away the guilt. Leon Morris and other significant scholars have shown that the idea of satisfying God's wrath against sin, that that is inherent in the word propitiation. Paul is saying here that Christ's sacrificial death is the means by which God's just wrath is turned away from sinners. It's why we don't have to experience that wrath. We need to understand several things that distinguish biblical propitiation from the pagan expressions of it. In pagan religions, 
the person who is experiencing some difficulty assumes that he has offended the gods in some way, but he usually doesn't know how. The gods are kind of unpredictable, but something apparently has got them upset. And he's not quite sure which sacrifice will work uh, to calm down the gods so that he and his family can get relief from their troubles, whatever they may be. But the shamans, they have more experience uh, with these sort of things. So the troubled man goes to the, the shaman, pays the fee, offers the prescribed sacrifices, and hopes uh, that the deities will be happy for a little while and leave him and his family alone. His sacrifice is an attempt to propitiate the gods, to appease them, to satisfy them. But biblical propitiation is much different. In the first place, God's wrath against sin, uh, it, it is not capricious, it's not mysterious. Rather, it is a settled, holy opposition to evil. It's expressed both in temporal and eternal judgments. Now, we see the temporal consequences of God's wrath in both the Old and the New Testaments. God cast Adam and Eve out of the garden and pronounced curses on them and curses on the earth and curses on Satan because of their sin. He sent the flood to destroy everyone, earth, everyone on earth in the days of Noah. He rained fire and brimstone down on the decadent citizens of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, however you interpret the book of Revelation, it's clear that God's temporal judgments were not limited to the Old Testament. He pours out his wrath on rebellious people right up to the time until Christ comes again. Now, that same book, it shows what Jesus often ta taught, that, that God's temporal wrath will turn into horrible, eternal wrath at the final judgment. We've already seen the concept of God's wrath all the way back in chapter 1, verse 18. Paul writes, For the wrath of God is revealed. That's present tense. It, it could be tritely translated, is being revealed and continues to be revealed. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. We saw that a large part of God's presently revealed wrath against sin is to let us suffer the consequences of sin. He talks about this in chapter 1, verses 24 through 32. If you remember, three times Paul says, God gave them over. What did he give them over to? To their sin and to its consequences. In 2.5, Paul refers to God's wrath as it pertains to eternal judgment. Here's what he says. But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Again, in 3.5, he mentions the God who inflicts wrath. So, the concept of propitiation as the satisfying God's wrath is not foreign to the Bible or to Romans. But there's another major difference between the pagan concept of pacifying the anger of the gods and the biblical concept of propitiation. In the pagan religions, people take the initiative by offering sacrifices in an attempt to satisfy, to placate the gods. But in the Bible... God takes the initiative by providing the specific means of averting his wrath on sin. He even tells us how to do it. 
First, God always spells out what sin is uh, so that no one should accidentally do something to make God angry. He warned Adam and Eve not to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He spelled out the consequences that would follow if they disobeyed. And what were they? They would die. The same is true in the law of Moses. God spelled out what Israel should do or should not do along with the consequences for disobedience. Now also, in mercy, God provides the way to satisfy His wrath and to be reconciled to Him. If you remember with Adam and Eve, he, he slaughtered an animal and provided its skin to clothe them. He told Noah to build an ark to preserve him and his family through the flood. He provided Abraham with a ram there in the thicket so that he would not have to sacrifice his son Isaac. He gave detailed instructions to Moses about the sacrificial system. And finally and supremely, by sending his son Jesus to die in our place on the cross, God satisfied his own wrath against our sin. Jesus paid the debt that we owed so that God can show his grace and love to all who trust in Jesus. Now, Paul makes this clear by the phrase, whom God put forward. That's the ESV. Other translations, they read, set forth and presented and displayed publicly. The verb that Paul uses there can also mean to purpose or to plan beforehand. The noun is used in Romans 8.28 and 9.11 in just that way. And some scholars argue for that meaning here. It would mean that God planned beforehand to provide Jesus as the propitiation for our sins. And I'm not going to argue against that. Revelation tells us that he was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. But it can also mean to set forth publicly. Now, in this view, God's setting forth or displaying Jesus as a propitiation would refer to his public death on the cross. Also, to his, the apostolic preaching of the cross. That's also putting Christ forward. Whichever view is correct, they both point to the fact that God took the initiative in providing the sacrifice that we need to satisfy His wrath. Now, back in 2006, I believe it was, Crossway Books uh, asked John Piper to write a book. So he took a whole summer to write it. He took a sabbatical and he wrote 50, way, 50 Reasons Jesus Came to Die. Great book. I would encourage you to get it and read it. Here's reason number one, to absorb the wrath of God. That's getting to the point right from the get-go. Without that, we're doomed. God's wrath has to be dealt with. Now, the word for propitiation is hilasterion. That's in the Greek. And it's used many times in the Old Testament. Do you know what it refers to? The mercy seat. Do you remember the mercy seat? It, was in, it sat on top of the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies. It's where God sat. And as he's looking down, what is he looking down at? He's looking through the wings of a couple of cherubim. And he's, he's looking down at the law of Moses. What does the law of Moses do? Condemns us from the start. It condemns us. 
So once a year, the high priest would bring in the blood of the lamb that was you know, symbolic for the nation. And what would he do? He'd sprinkle that blood on the mercy seat. Now when God looked down, what did he see? He saw a propitiation. He saw blood of an innocent but suitable substitute. That's why it's called the mercy seat. It, it, you know that I love this, this little passage here in Luke 18. You've got the publican and the Pharisee, and the Pharisee's all proud of himself, and da 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 The publican says, God, have mercy on me or be merciful to me, a sinner. Do you know it is this word? God, mercy seat me. Let the blood of the Lamb stand in my stead. And what does Jesus say? I tell you today, he went home justified, not the other, right with God. Well, we probably should not translate this word as mercy seat. But it is easy to understand that Paul could have had this in mind when he used the word here. The mercy seat is the place where atonement took place. God's wrath was averted by the sprinkling of the blood of an innocent substitute on that mercy seat. Now, that yearly ritual, because it was in the Holy of Holies, was hidden from the public. But it pointed ahead to Jesus, whom God publicly displayed as the final and complete sacrifice for our sins. Well, B, Christ's blood is the means by which God's wrath is propitiated or satisfied. Again, liberals don't like this emphasis on uh, Christ's blood as a means of propitiation. It seems kind of crude, kind of primitive. Maybe you wonder why the New Testament puts such an emphasis on Christ's blood. Why doesn't it just refer to his death, which is clearly what the blood symbolizes? Or is it? Why does Paul say that God displayed Christ as a propitiation in his blood? Well, he did that to connect what Christ did on the cross with the Old Testament sacrificial system. So let's just take a step back and ask another question. Why did God require blood sacrifices in the first place? Well, you go all the way back to Leviticus 17.11. And here the Lord explains to Moses, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. God told Adam and Eve that the punishment for their sins was death. Now, that refers to both physical death and to spiritual death or, or separation from God. When God killed an animal to clothe them with its skin, he was indicating that the way of reconciliation, reconciliation with him was through the shedding of the blood of an acceptable substitute. In the Old Testament sacrificial system, God provided a temporary way for the sinners to have their sins atoned for so that they could be, in that moment, reconciled to him. He required that they kill a male lamb or goat without blemish and use its blood as the propitiation or the atoning sacrifice for their sins. And of course, that simply pictured the substitutionary death of the victim in place of the sinner. 
It pointed ahead to Jesus, to the Lamb of God, the ultimate and all-sufficient sacrifice for our sins. Thus, Jesus, just before going to the cross, you remember he's celebrating the Passover with his disciples, and he took the cup, and here's what he says. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. So Paul's point when he says that God publicly displayed Christ as a propitiation in his blood is that Jesus' sacrificial death is satisfied God's wrath against sin. Now all of this is foundational to understand the issue that Paul goes on to address. How can God be just when he forgives our sins? So number two here, Jesus' sacrificial death displays God's justice in passing over sins before the cross and in justifying sinners after the cross who have faith in Jesus. So A, Jesus' sacrificial death, it displays God's justice in patiently passing over the sins committed before the cross. Verse 25 says, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, that's a fancy word for patience, he has passed over, or he had passed over, former sins. Paul here is answering the charge that if atonement and uh, forgiveness come only through Christ's death on the cross, then God was either unjust or terribly sloppy about sin to let go of all the sin that occurred before the cross. If it's a cross that paid for it and they're sinning and he forgives them, what's going on? Hebrews 9, 9 and 10, 1 through 4 make clear that those Old Testament sacrifices could never make perfect. They could never cleanse the conscience of the worshiper who offered them. The fact that people in the Old Testament era could be forgiven without the full satisfaction of Christ's death, that kind of implies that God is unjust or not righteous. But Paul, like the author of Hebrews, argues that God's forbearance in passing over sins in that era before the cross, it did not undermine his righteousness. The reason is because that sacrificial system would find its fulfillment in the death of Jesus. Now, this did not mean that God failed to punish or that he overlooked sins committed before Christ. Nor does it mean that God did not really forgive sin in the Old Testament. Rather, Paul's meaning is that God postponed the full penalty due sins in the Old Covenant. He allowed sinners to stand before him without their having provided an adequate satisfaction to the demands of his holy justice. It's kind of as if the Old Testament saints who offered animal sacrifices in obedience to the law, they went to heaven on credit. <laughs> the payment of the bill was promised, but it had not yet been paid. Hebrews 9.15 actually explains this. He says, For this reason He, Jesus, is the mediator of a new covenant. So that since a death has taken place, he's talking about the death of Jesus, has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant. This is talking specifically, specifically, the sins before the cross. He says, so that those who have been called under the old covenant may receive the promise of an eternal inheritance. God's righteousness in passing over the sins of those before Christ was vindicated 
because Jesus paid the debt in full for those sins when he died. He made full atonement. Well, B, Jesus' sacrificial death displays God's justice after the cross when he justifies the one who has faith in Jesus. So verse 25 deals with the question of God's justice in justifying sinners before the cross. Verse 26 focuses on his justice in justifying sinners after the cross. Verse 26 says, It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, as we saw last week, to justify is to declare the accused to be righteous. But if the accused is actually guilty and the judge declares him to be righteous, isn't the judge unjust? Now here, Paul answers no. The cross where Jesus shed his blood to satisfy God's wrath against our sin, that actually displays God's righteousness. But when I say the word, when, when Paul uses the word righteousness here, he's not referring to declaring sinners righteous, but rather to God's justice. God is doing what is right. The death of Jesus demonstrates that justice has been served. God didn't just shrug off our sin. Remember, Paul's already told us the, the wages of sin is death. Well, that's in chapter 6, isn't it? That's coming up. The wages of sin is death, all right? Jesus, who is innocent of all sin, paid the penalty that we deserved. He bore the awful wrath of God when he cried out on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He died in our stead. On the cross, God's justice was satisfied so that his mercy could flow to every sinner who trusts in Jesus. So the propitiation that God set forth in Jesus' blood means that he would be just, God would be just, and he would also be the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now here Paul uses the name Jesus uh, alone to emphasize his identification with us as a man. Because he was fully human, his death may be applied to the sins of humans. Now, because he is the eternal son of God, his death has infinite merit. Jesus' death vindicates God against any charge of injustice or unrighteousness. But I want you to note carefully that the benefits of Jesus, they don't apply to everyone. God only justifies the one who has faith in Jesus now, Paul emphasizes his faith here in verse 22, verse 25, 26, 27, 28, 30, twice, and 31. And then he has believe in verse 22. So a lot of faith, a lot of believing here. Faith is not a work on our part that contributes to our salvation. It's a gift from God and not something that we originate. What would happen if we came up with our own faith? We would boast in it. We would. Faith is simply the hand that receives the gift of justification that God provides through the substitute, substitutionary death of Jesus. Some vers, uh, versions in verse 25 read, faith in his blood. We put our faith in his blood in the sense that we trust in his death on the cross. If our only means of, it's our only means of being right with God. Technically, we trust in Jesus himself. We trust the biblical witness concerning him. We trust the apostolic witness about the significance of his death in our place. It's a faith that realizes 
I'm spiritually ter terminal. And I can't heal myself. But Jesus can. His death paid the awful penalty that my sin deserves. Abandoning all efforts to save myself uh, by my own good deeds, I cast myself totally upon Jesus and His shed blood. So, thankfully, God is the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. But don't miss that He is also just. If you don't have faith in Jesus, you will faith, face God's inescapable justice brought against all of your sins. Now, either Jesus met God's justice on your behalf or you will face God's wrath on Judgment Day. That's just another way of saying what I've been saying here for years. Sin is paid for in one of only two ways, either by Jesus on the cross or by you for eternity in hell. There's no third option. Well, I conclude with just some practical applications. First, these verses show us that God takes sin very seriously. His grace does not mean that He is sloppy about sin. God doesn't just shrug and say, oh well, let's not worry about your sins. After all, everyone makes mistakes. No, His grace is grounded in His justice. God takes sin so seriously that He made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. Either you trust in Christ as your sin bearer or you'll face God's wrath throughout eternity. Well, second, because God takes sin so seriously, don't you think we should? It was our sin that put Jesus on the cross. That means that we should hate our sin and fight to kill it every day. Here's what Charles Spurgeon says about this. Shall I spare the sins then that nailed my Savior to the tree? Oh, Christian, how you ought to hate the very thought of sin. We are very severe upon the sins of others sometimes. How much more severe ought we to be upon our own? End quote. Well, finally, if Christ has offered himself as the satisfaction of God's wrath against sinners, then any sinner can come to him and find mercy. William Cowper was an 18th century English poet. He suffered just terribly from depression. In his late 20s, he tried to commit suicide twice, and they finally put him in an insane asylum. Cowper struggled with his guilt, and he often cried out, My sin, my sin, oh, for some fountain open for my cleansing. The main doctor there at the asylum was a committed Christian, and he get, gently guided Cowper to the only fountain that can wash away our sin and our guilt. One day, Cowper opened a Bible, and he saw Romans 3, 24 and 25. Being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood to manifest His righteousness. Cowper said, Immediately I received strength to believe, and the full beams of the Son of Righteousness shone on me. I saw the sufficiency of the atonement He had made, my pardon in His blood, and the fullness and completeness of His justification. In a moment, I believed and received the gospel. Cowper struggled with, struggled with severe depression for the rest of his life, but God used him to write many beloved hymns, including, There is a fountain 
<laughs> That's what he wanted, right? There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilt and shame. Cowper's experience of knowing that his sins were forgiven the instant that he believed in the shed blood of Jesus, that can be your experience today. Trust in Jesus and God's wrath is satisfied. He declares you not guilty both now and forever. Let's pray. Father, what an idea <laughs> that we come to you and give you our sins and you give us the righteousness of Christ. Father, do a work in our hearts that would change us today as we realize the great price that was paid for our freedom. Father, we were bought with a price. So God, speak to our hearts this morning. Let us hear from you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I'll just sum up the whole thing by what I just said a minute ago. Sin is only paid for in one of two ways. There's only two ways. One is either by Jesus on the cross. doesn't matter whether you were before the cross, which we're not, or after the cross, right? It's Jesus' death that pays for sin, or the sinner pays for his own sin under the wrath of God for eternity. Have you come to realize that? Have you sought out Jesus because he is the Savior? I hope you would do that this morning if you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. If you've never asked God to forgive you your sins, do it. He'll cleanse you. He'll make you a new creature. Is what Paul says. All things will be new. If, if you're a Christian, I hope that you just, I don't know, will take sin more seriously as you go through your week. Um, remember the price that was paid. Uh, yeah, we're under grace, right? And Paul says, but that doesn't mean we should sin all the more. No, it means we should love God all the more. So I encourage you as you walk with Christ this week, be mindful of your sin. Hate it deep down. God does. He wants you to as well. Thank you for joining us for this podcast from First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. You can find more information and follow us on Facebook or visit our website, CrawfordvilleFBC.com.